Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good whatever it is, wherever you're sitting today. I'm Ali Amagasu, welcoming you to the latest episode of Cloud Unfiltered. Today, we are so, so happy to welcome a guest that it turns out is already a friend of Pete's and shares a passion for something that we all know Pete is very passionate about, and that's serverless technology. Here's the interesting thing that's going to make this conversation a little bit complicated. He's not only talking about serverless technology, he's from a company called Serverless Inc. His name is Nick Gottlieb. Welcome, Nick. Hey, thanks, Allie. Great to be here. Sure, we're glad to have you. Um, before you guys get into the all the exciting things that are going on in serverless today, how it's progressing, who's using it, how they're using it, tell me a little bit about serverless. What do you guys do? Yeah, so we we build and maintain an open source project called the Serverless Framework, and the Serverless Framework is a, a development framework built built for engineers, built for developers to make it easy and accessible to build on top of of great serverless technologies that are provided by various cloud platforms like AWS, Google Google Cloud Platform, Azure, and um, we also offer a product called Serverless Framework Enterprise that are for teams that are scaling out their serverless development and, and need visibility, security, compliance, additional features like that. All right, that makes sense. Did the name serverless, was serverless being flung around as a description for this kind of architecture or this kind of way to, way to build applications before this company existed or were you guys first? Yeah, it was. It's kind of a funny story. So when we first built the framework, it was called Jaws, and around that time, late 2015, there was a couple areas where AWS had had started to describe Lambda as server-free and serverless, but it hadn't really caught on as a big um, as a big catchphrase. But we saw that and thought, you know, that's a, that's a really great name. And there were some copyright issues why we couldn't continue with the name Jaws. There's actually already a software project called Jaws. So we were looking for a new name, thought serverless was pretty catchy. And so around end of 2015, we changed the project name to serverless. And and it was you know shortly after that, that the term really started to catch on. So it was good timing. That is good timing. Maybe you guys kind of drove adoption of, of that term. Who knows? Yeah, we'll definitely take some credit for that. <laughs> so Pete, I know you got a lot of questions for Nick or a lot of things you'd like to talk about. So uh, let it rip. I do. Well, Nick, let me start with, I think you and I first met at, I want to say we met at Gillies, right? At the first serverless meetup that you guys had at reInvent in 2016. Is that yep, right? Yep. That sounds right. I think we met at the, the first serverless, serverless happy hour that we held at reInvent. And I think I still have... St I still have like the old school lightning bolt logo. I think I still have a, if I dug in my drawers of my desk a little bit, I probably still have an old, old sticker still. Yeah. You're, you're one of the original serverless champions. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> so let me, so let me ask you, cause there's, there's, there's lots of talk about this in, in industry. What's your definition of what serverless is and what makes it different than other application architecture approaches? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I'll preface it by saying the definition of serverless is evolving. And, and if we looked back three years ago, the definition really was function as a service. That was what serverless was. I think now it's evolved to encapsulate kind of a larger array of, of infrastructure that does the infrastructure that for the most part is, is abstracted away from the developer where they have a, an API or an interface that they utilize, but they don't have to think about 
the underlying hardware. They don't have to think about scaling. They don't have to think about, you know, patching and updating. I think at kind of a, a more technical level, that's how the evolution, the definition of serverless is evolving. But there's also another component component to it, which is around developer experience and having a simple streamlined developer experience where servers and infrastructure are only surfaced when they need to be. And, and obviously there's servers there, but as a developer building with serverless, they're not, you don't have to think about them in your workflow. So how would you how would you differentiate what's emerged out of Amazon and the other public clouds? And even I'm going to ask you later about this function as a service on Kubernetes movement. Mm-hmm. How would you differentiate that from some of the earlier platforms like Heroku or Google App Engine? Yeah, I think, you know, I think those those type of platforms were definitely precursors to to what we call serverless today. I think really it was just around the, the the technology evolving to the point that we could deliver the serverless experience that we can today. You know, with with Heroku and even App Engine, you still had to think about scaling to a degree. You had dynos, you had a slider. There was it, it was definitely moving in that direction, but it, the technology and the automation didn't exist yet to the degree that you could really have you know almost scaling just became almost completely an afterthought. So I think those were important building blocks to, to what we have today. Now, one of the things that I I enjoy about using the serverless framework, because I think when you and I met, I hadn't yet used it. I had a, a serverless project that I built on my own and, and found that I was building a lot of the things that you guys were doing and only you were doing it way better and at scale is so you when you've got when you've got some piece of compute when you've got a lambda function let, let's just use that as our example right mm-hmm. you've got you've got to hook some kind of event to it so that it knows when it's going to execute and then typically you have other other pieces that you're then going to integrate with yeah so what you guys do in the serverless yaml file right is you make that part of the definition of the function is you, you're in lockstep defining what events are going to trigger that function. And then you've got the resources section sort of at the bottom of it that lets you put anything you would ordinarily put in a cloud formation template. Mm-hmm. So at, at what point did that become central to the framework? And how easy or difficult have you have you found to leverage those concepts to the other public clouds that don't necessarily have the same cloud formation concepts that Amazon does? Yeah, great, great question. Um, so Early on, the the core use case and the narrow use case we were focused on with serverless framework was just building an API, right? When Lambda first came out from AWS, it was really kind of designed and promoted as a as a data pipeline tools for transform. Run in an API gateway, put a Dynamo database it, behind it. Yeah, and- that that was the early use case, right? Let's make it easy to connect it with an API gateway endpoint and then store some data in Dynamo. Now, you know, one of the great things about having a community and being an open source project is people are going to take that and do all sorts of different things with it. So we, we started to see all these different really cool use cases emerging and our, our de- the developers within our community wanted to extend and expand what they could do with serverless. So that's where, you know, bringing in the ability to use custom cloud formation and then also, you know, the ability to build plugins and extend the functionality of serverless. Yeah. Those were all kind of all of that was done with the goal of allowing developers to take this in the direction they want and to be able to build what they want to build with it. As far as as how we are, as far as how that's kind of extended to other platforms, you know, we were originally an AWS framework and then expanded to support um, 
different platforms. You know, it's it's been it's been a challenge, but we've we've come a long way on how that's done. Luckily, you know, each of the major cloud platforms they have their own infrastructure kind of descriptor, uh, similar to CloudFormation, and we're able to utilize the you know the syntax that each of those providers has to allow that similar functionality. Cool. Yeah. Well, let me. I, I want to ask you about growth in this area over the, the next three years, but I, I want to preface it with so I'm we're, we're recording this the week before Cisco Live in San Diego um, this year, and this will be the third year in a row I do a serverless 101 talk, and I feature the serverless framework in that serverless 101 talk where I deploy I deploy a version of the Kubernetes guestbook only that's been rewritten with serverless and it has the same exact functionality. But last year, literally the week before I went to Cisco Live, tech giant KitchenAid announced that they had created a serverless application for uh, vendor for vendor locator in the UK, right? And it was very much what you just described, right? So they have they've got some static HTML that they've got some JavaScript that calls uh, API gateway, which has Lambda behind it, which has Dynamo behind that, that has some mapping of what the locations are. And then in the browser in the JavaScript, they combine API calls. They, they take your postal code, wherever you are, or they'll take your, your latitude and longitude off of your phone, and they'll tell you where, where, you, can, where you can find KitchenAid products closest to you and then they, they map that on a Google map for you, right? So it was their announcement yeah, really cool. that they had entered you know, the serverless world and it's, it's very much this use case that you just talked about where it's, it's API Gateway, Lambda, and, um, and Dynamo. So what are some of the metrics that you're seeing in customer growth, whether it, it, it be little stories like that of, of a company you wouldn't think of as being you know, necessarily a cutting edge tech company or, uh, you guys are very proud, as you should be, as the number of GitHub stars that you have. I imagine you have things like uh, NPM downloads or number of paying customers. Like, what are some metrics that you can share with us? Like, how has this space grown compared to three years ago when you and I first met? Yeah. So, I mean, on the on the growth curve, we're we're an open source project. We utilize, you know, we're an NPM module. That's how how developers use the framework. And so NPM downloads is always a great metric to kind of look at, just that, that we look at as well to gauge to gauge adoption and how that's growing. And you know, if you go back to 2016, we had about 150,000 downloads. 2017, 1.1 million. Last year we did about three there's about 3.9 million downloads and, and we're already at 3.7 this year you know we, we had wow. almost a million over nine hundred thousand downloads last month so the the growth trajectory and curve on that is really good developers are excited about this stuff i think that there's kind of a couple of themes we're seeing right it it's one it's just it's just easier and quicker to build stuff and both personally and professionally i think developers are being asked to build more than ever you know the, the rate of innovation is just increasing. And, and so I think that's really appealing. And we're seeing a, a trend we're absolutely seeing kind of to that point with KitchenAid around customers is a strong growth among, among companies that were not software or technology companies at all 10 or 15 years ago. And now, and today are, are shipping 10, 15 apps a year due to you know, the changing competitive pressures, the yeah. changing economy. And those those companies that don't necessarily have that software DNA 
but now really do have to become software companies to compete. I think serverless serves that type of customer especially well. And we've definitely seen that in our customer base. I, I love that you brought that part of it up because like when I when I have to explain this to old guard IT people, as you Im would imagine being a Cisco employee, I spend a fair amount of my time doing that. <laughs> it, it's two things that it's number one in 2019, every company is a software company, right? Because every Absolutely. company figured out that the easiest way to inject change into any ecosystem is with software. Yeah, like everybody figured that out. They're either a software company or they're, they're not going to be around a whole lot longer. Right. And then the second thing is when I first started in, I, when I first graduated college and got my first job in HPIT in 1993, man, if you did four releases a year, you were just moving. That was like light speed. And the reason for that is because we were deploying applications on physical servers. And the change control around those physical servers was very tight. Because if you screwed one up, it took you months to get a new one, right? As opposed to a container takes seconds or you're doing, you know, millisecond between the time an event occurs and a Lambda function gets loaded into memory. It used to be that the scarcity, the, the scarce resource was the physical server. And now the scarce resource. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I absolutely, you know, agree with that. And, and we, we see it in, in the employment economy as well, right? Just look at the, how the, the relationship between, you know, developers and, and organizations has changed from it being, you know, almost more commoditized to now just having this intense demand for, for development and developers that, that far outstrips the actual supply. And you can see that across, you know, code code schools, boot camps, tooling that's like serverless that's really designed to make engineers more efficient and productive. It's It's been a, a huge paradox swing and um, and shift. And it's, it's, you know, it's been really interesting to watch. And in, in my career, having been involved in kind of several tools around uh, developer de development and deployment and operations automation, I think that's, you know, that's due to the demand and then the changing um, the changing of these scarce resources being now that, that that it really does lie with the developers. Are you finding like like I do, are you finding that the learning curve is flatter for serverless than it is for, say, Kubernetes? Because that's that's been my experience, but I don't know if I'm jaded on that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we a huge percentage of our community serverless framework is the first time they ever use the public cloud. It's their it's their first entry point and introduction to the public cloud, and it's it's you know it's almost I think sometimes we describe it internally as like cloud light, right? If you're if you're new to cloud development, you've always kind of built on on internal system or on premise systems, and now somebody is saying, okay, welcome to the cloud, build and 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 maintain and manage this Kubernetes you know cluster can be pretty overwhelming. And, and there is certainly a steep learning curve there. Whereas if it's, if somebody asks you, hey, deploy deploy a few functions and now you have a service up and running, I think it's a much more approachable kind of architecture and, and pattern that we see people pick it up and, and be productive on it within you know a few hours sometimes. Right.
So you're so it's it's funny you, you see that in like telcom right like third world countries that never have landlines and go you know go from nothing to cell phones so you're you're seeing that kind of jump where someone's never used public cloud and now all of a sudden they're going straight to serverless yeah that's that's a great analogy and we're, we're definitely seeing that kind of you know skipping some of the other uh, technologies that they don't they don't have legacy systems running on those technologies so they kind of have the freedom to do that. Sure. Absolutely, going straight from very traditional on-premise architectures straight to, to serverless. Now, but let me ask you about, so so there are critics in the container community that, and even in the serverless community, that if you follow enough people on Twitter, there's kind of this serverless versus container argument, mm -hmm. which which I, I, I kind of think, you know, it depends upon what you're trying to do as to which one of those you, you might choose. Yep. And and people like Adrian Kokroff certainly espouse that that kind of view as well. What where do you sit on this on the serverless versus containers and I guess how heated do you see it getting sometimes because I see it get pretty heated at <laughs> Of course, yeah, you, you put any sort of contentious topic on on Twitter and you you're going to get something heated. I think just having a broad discussion around serverless versus containers is is kind of silly. I mean, it totally depends on the use case. I think containers aren't going anywhere. There's always going to be use cases where that's that's the appropriate approach for you you and your your team and your company and your use case. Just as there's going to be other times and and use cases where serverless is a more appropriate use case. So, I think it really it really comes down, you know, at the end of the day to the use case and I don't think it's serverless versus containers. I think that's, you know, that's great fodder for Twitter and and it's fun, but in reality I don't think it's having it at just a high level like that typically isn't a really helpful debate in my opinion. I think it really context of the use case. Well, and to me it comes down to the specifically the the symptoms about your use case might be how frequent are your transactions? Because at some at some point, mm -hmm. at some point, if your transactions are so frequent, it makes sense to have some piece of code re resident in memory as opposed to getting loaded off a disk every time a transaction comes in. Mm -hmm. And then the, the second part of that is how big is your state and where are you getting that from, right? Because the functions are inherently stateless objects so if you have to go fetch state every time you load one there's an overhead associated with that but in many many use cases that overhead is negligible in other use cases that overhead is significant and that might also lead your choice there are, are you seeing anything besides those two that i'm i'm purporting as things to look for in your use case as to where you might choose one versus the other yeah, I mean, I think those are big ones at kind of the the developer level and making those decisions is is really at the technical level, right? Is as how what's what is the um, what's the cost? What's the throughput? What's the you know how long lived are my jobs? All of those things go into kind of making those architectural decisions. We're also seeing thought at the more kind of organizational level and the thinking there being okay, what what matters to our organization, right? Is, is, is portability the most important thing? Right. Is agility the most important thing? It's lowest total cost of ownership the most important thing. And really depending on the organization, the CIO, what, how they think about these things, it can be you know, very much tilted towards containers, very much tilted towards serverless, or often a hybrid, right? We're, we're gonna use containers for some of our core, you know, 
core data and applications, and we're going to lean on serverless for a lot of our internal IT and DevOps automation and, and you know, on-the-fly customer apps. It, we see all sorts of different patterns, but um, it, I think it, it kind of starts there. What's the need of the organization and the culture there, and wh- what do they kind of value? Right. Well, now, speaking of that hybrid, serverless, serverless Inc. was kind enough to give me some space in the fall to write about some research that I had done on function-as-a-service runtimes that are run on top of Kubernetes. So things like OpenWhisk, OpenFAS, uh, FN Project, and those kind of guys. Um, so there's like five to six of these, depending upon how you want to count Knative from Google, that have more than 3,000 GitHub stars right now. I, I don't think in three years we're going to have that many. It's probably going to narrow it to two or three. What are you seeing in, in that sort of sub-market as, as it tries to sort of bring you the best of both worlds, that you could have a viable serverless framework on-prem and run it alongside or even in the same cluster as a more traditional container engine? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I think that space is evolving and 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 still trying to. I think the the platforms are still trying to figure out what they are and how they're going to serve their customers. And, and K Native is a really interesting one, right? They're really taking the approach of giving a full, you know, it's a full Kubernetes system with a serverless developer experience that can kind of be exposed on top of it. I think you know. Again, it kind of comes down to what's valued within an organization and how they want to make these decisions. If if really just having that that you know functions as a function as a service and that developer experience on top of containers is what you're after, I think you know Knative and some of these other ones can really accomplish that. But the 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 part that's important to consider there with kind of those versus some of the more cloud native or, or platform native services is that a lot of these cloud platforms are building incredible services, right? These services are coming out at, at a massive rate. You look at AWS, Azure, GCP, all of them are just releasing new services. Every, every time we go to, every year when we go to reInvent, it seems like there's 25 new services. Yeah. And I know like each time those, each reInvent, there's like personally at least three or four of them that I'm like, I want to use that. That's going to solve a problem for me. And, you know, with, with the more native approach using Lambda or using Azure Functions, you can really tap into those services super easy, right? That's, that's a big part of the value of serverless. I think how that works with things like Knative is still, the story is still being told there. So what your access will be to these kind of more highly abstracted, higher value proprietary services. Right. So, you know, it's, again, it's a, it's a trade-off. And I, I think the, especially within AWS, who's kind of, you know, they were in the serverless game first and are, are out ahead to a degree with their services. It's it's still, you know, to be told what the what, what the other platforms and vendors, what that story is really going to look like. But I think it seems like the, like the, the communities are solidifying around Knative as kind of the architecture in, in which to solve that, that problem where you still want control over your system, but have that mm-hmm. serverless developer experience. Um, but it's early, right? I think been a year or less since that was yeah, really very early. Well, t- to your point, the the side project that I'm working on right now, the serverless project I'm working on right now uses twelve AWS <laughs> services, right? I'm using CloudFormation, CloudWatch, SNS, API Gateway, Cognito, ACM, Lambda, you know, and the list goes on. And you don't necessarily. I mean, the, the, what, what you potentially give up if you try to run those on-prem is you don't necessarily have that same breadth of services that you can weave together into a, a larger application. 
So it's, you know, but the further you go into that, the more locked into AWS you are. So it, you know, it's kind of, which thing are you trying to optimize and let that kind of be your guide? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's often a trade off of, you know, some lock in and loss of, um, flexibility there versus, you know, agility and how fast do we want to move and yeah. how, what's our cost of ownership? You know what, what we try to do, and you can kind of see our opinion around this in the product itself of serverless framework is we try to focus and enable our, our users and customers to focus on what we call vendor choice. And, and what, what that means is, you know, learn a single tool set, have that, that tool set, have the ability to utilize the different cloud platforms underneath it. And then have the agility within your organization to say, you know, for this yeah. use case, we're going to utilize Google Cloud Platform. For this use case, we're going to utilize AWS. And maybe even for this third use case, we're going to utilize Azure or a third cloud. But we can, all, we can do all of that via a single tool set, a single tool chain. Right. That's kind of the future that, that I, myself, and Serverless Inc. that we envision. That really it's about, you know, there's going to continue to be this expansion of, of fantastic vendors and fantastic resources that developers can utilize. The key is going to be how agile is your organization and how what's the plethora of choices that are available to that organization's developers. And we think that's going to be kind of the, the key the key metric going forward is how how many different you know vendors can you tap in to be as flexible as possible for each use case. Sure. When, I mean, like what you said, if, if you've got these companies, you don't think of as software companies that are spitting out 10, 15 apps a year. Um, I mean, I remember at, what my favorite, my favorite talk at reInvent last year, I think it was Comcast that they, they created some integration with Netflix and their, their, their own set top boxes. And it was two FTEs, three months, all completely serverless. Well, mm -hmm. if, if you're talking, you know, if, if you're talking six months of FTEs, if you're looking at that from the CIO's chair, is lock-in a thing anymore? If if the rewrite costs, if that's if this rewrite cost is, you know, half a FTE year, then is that is that even something to be concerned with? If if you can achieve that agility that you're talking about, and that, yeah. that's why that's so important. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting times for those type of discussions, right? Because we're we're things are changing so quickly, and the resources and the landscape that's available is is just changing so rapidly that you know it's an interest. It's certainly an interesting time to be a CIO and be figuring out these problems. It's also a really fun time to be a developer. Like, there's just never been more options to to move fast and build amazing stuff. It's today. Yeah. I think this is the golden golden era of being a developer. Like, there's just there's so much cool stuff you can do right now. It was better than getting beat up at lunch in 1981. I can tell <laughs> you right now. <laughs> Ali, did you have anything else you want to? I was going to ask him about the his company logistics was the last thing I was going to ask. But if you had something else you wanted to. Well, just as you're talking about it being the golden age of developers, what I wonder is, is this open to all developers or is it really only people at small and medium companies where there's a little more flexibility and agility? If you're at a large company where there's pretty heavy governance, very carefully watched budgets and procedures around how you access development assets and you know mm -hmm. compute space and things like that. Is it open to those guys? Are those guys the big companies finding workarounds to be able to use things like serverless or is that still a big obstacle are you finding? 
Um, I would say it's it, we've seen way more adoption among those larger enterprise companies in the last you know twelve to eighteen months than than a few years ago for sure. It's certainly swinging that way, and you know we we have customers in in insurance and finance, transportation, manufacturing, a lot of like what you would traditionally consider the slower moving industries, and you know there it, it it comes down to competitive pressures, right? If they they need to compete in their market and compete with the other, um, you know, with the other folks that, that are fighting for market share and moving fast. It's kind of a move faster die market out there. And I think more and more of these companies that, you know, you would consider traditional and slow moving, they're picking up stuff like serverless and running with it because they have to, and they realize that. So we've certainly seen a lot of adoption among those, those kind of larger, more traditional enterprises. That's good to know. I just feel like it might be an uphill battle if you were the developer who's found this, <laughs> you like this process, and then you kind of have to advocate up to get your organization to adopt it. Um, that's, yeah, Ali, that, that's absolutely true. I, I wouldn't say it's easy, and I would say that's often the process, right? Like there's a champion, there's someone who pilots the program, gets the POC going, shows the value, and and then evangelizes and works. It doesn't. It, it's not a process that happens top down. That's definitely true something that's happening bottoms up from the developers. But again, getting back to that golden era, developers have that influence to have that bottom up influence with an organization that really didn't exist so much, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And, but that, that's absolutely the process we're seeing a manifest in. Well, or even, I mean, I'm probably on about my fifth serverless application now, and I haven't spent a cent of Cisco dollars on it. Right. I mean, the cool th among the cool things about serverless to me is is how well it scales down. Mm -hmm. Right. I, I haven't paid. I, I have paid for my Lambda and AWS usage exclusively with the gift cards that I get at reInvent for <laughs> filling out the post event survey every year. <laughs> oh, like, that's funny. You know, and then you can use that to demo stuff, and that's above and beyond. I finally did break down, and, and actually last week got an official Cisco account that has fifty bucks a quarter on it, and that's <laughs> that's fine for me for my little toy projects. And it's it's enough to do like what Nick's Nick's talking about to be able to show somebody some value to be able to demo something live. And it's I mean it's it's that little. It, it, if you have if you have access to some kind of automated account creation like we do at Cisco for some you know, low, low pre-approved thing. And, and I even, cause I went to, the first thing I did with it was when I went and bought a domain name and I even, I, I put my, I put my AWS gift card from last year that I've been saving. I put that on there to pay for the domain name. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a great point. And it's, you know, that's typically what brings developers in the door initially with serverless. Like, Hey, I want to build something, a side project. I don't know if anyone's really going to use it, but I don't want to pay I don't yeah. want to pay for infrastructure for this thing. So that, that's often what brings developers in the door. Now, as, as things kind of work up the, the food chain in the organization, I think the, value, the, the cost of infrastructure itself value becomes less a part of the story. And it's more around the, the total cost of ownership of that application. How many people do I need to build and maintain this system? But as an entry point into serverless, you know, that, that's a great story. I can, I can build, just like you just said, I can build five applications and it, it costs me nothing. Well, that, that's how I got started. I, I needed a batch server and I was too cheap to pay for an EC2 server on my own dime. And I did it with, I did it with Lambda writing some Java code on my own. And I mean, you, you know, the side project that I'm talking about. It, yeah. And I supported 5,000 users on less than a dollar a month, not, not per user, like total. 
That's amazing. And it was all because I was, when, when cost was my number one factor, because I didn't want to have to explain to my wife why I was having this side <laughs> project that I was paying for out of my own pocket. Like I designed the application in a way to be as cheap as possible. And, you know, Lambda and some of these serverless concepts enabled me to do that. The last thing I want to ask you about, Nick, because you brought it up in our, in our pre-call, which I thought was fascinating. Serverless Inc. is a remote first company. Talk, talk about what that's like and what, that, what that's been like as your company has grown in terms of your headcount. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, so we're we're about twenty six people now, and we're we're completely remote. We have we have folks in the Bay Area, Nebraska, Texas, East Coast, Germany, Turkey, South Africa. We're we're spread out all over the place. And you know, when when things first got started, and it was just you know three or four of us, it was just kind of natural and easy. As it's grown, it's taken some more kind of concerted effort to do remote well. But, you know, I think we've just like you can kind of see in our software, we value independence and autonomy and efficiency and remote having a remote company is great for that. Right. You have a lot of, you know, focused time to, to get stuff done. But the, the thing you miss is kind of having some of that direct interaction and FaceTime. So a few things we do to help you know, build that in is we have, we have biweekly team calls where we're all on a, on a video conference together. And we spend the first hour of that just doing a personal activity. So it might be, you know, sharing some things about our weekend or, or right. going on Google maps and showing, talking about our neighborhood. Simulating um, that water cooler time, right? Exactly. Exactly. That's so, so important to get in. Um, and then, you know, a couple times a year, we all, we do a offsite where we all get together in person in, in a location, usually like rent a big house or a couple houses. And it's a week of hanging out. It's a week of, you know, working on strategy and what the roadmap for the next six months looks like. So, you know, it's, it's evolving as the company grows and we're trying new stuff, but, um, the best thing about it is it's let us build a really interesting, diverse team from people all over the place. And that part's been really fun. Great. Great. Well, thanks for explaining that. Pete, if that's all you got, I know we got to let Nick go. He's got other places to go and people to talk to. So hey, thank you uh, so much. Thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it. I appreciate you uh, explaining what's going on with serverless. It's been a while, actually, since we've talked about this on our show. So uh, I think our, our uh, audience members that are serverless enthusiasts will appreciate uh, everything you've shared today. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, Pete. Bye.